0: Chapter six of the Romantic by May Sinclair This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor Maine Book two John Roden Conway Chapter six It was an hour since they had left New Haven. The boat went steadily, inflexibly without agitation, cutting the small crisp waves with a sound like the flowing of stiff silk. For a moment after the excited rushing and hooting of the ambulance car there had been something not quite real about this motion till suddenly you caught the rhythm the immense throb and tremor of the engines then she knew she was going out with john and gwinnie denning and a man called sutton dr sutton to belgium to the war she wondered whether any of them really knew what it would be like when they got there she was vague herself she thought of the war mostly in two pictures one very distant, hanging in the air to her right, colourless as an illustration in the papers, grey figures tumbled in a grey field, white puff bursts of shrapnel in a grey sky, and one very near, long lines of stretchers, wounded men and dead men on stretchers, passing and passing before her. She saw herself and John carrying a stretcher, John at the head and her at the foot, and Gwinnie and Dr Sutton with another stretcher nothing for her and john and gwinnie but field work the farm had spoiled them incurably for life indoors but it had hardened their muscles and their nerves it had fitted them for the things they would have to do the things they would have to see there would be blood she knew there would be blood but she didn't see it she saw white very white bandages and greyish white sallow white faces that had no features that she knew she hadn't really thought so very much about the war there had been too many other things to think about their seven weeks training at coventry the long days in roden and conway's motor works the long evenings in the ambulance classes field practice in the meadow that john's father had lent to the red cross runs along the warwickshire roads with john sitting beside her teaching her to steer and handle the heavy ambulance car an endless preparation and under it all like a passion like a hidden illness their impatience, their intolerable longing to be out there. If there had been nothing else to think about, there was John. Always John. Not that you could think about him without thinking about the war. He was so thoroughly mixed up with it. You couldn't conceive him as left out of it or as leaving himself out. It had been an obsession with him, to get into it, to get into it at once without waiting. That was why there were only four of them. He wouldn't wait for more volunteers – they could get all the volunteers they wanted afterwards and all the cars his father would send out any number she suspected john of not really wanting the volunteers of not even wanting gwinnie and dr sutton she could see he would have liked to have gone with her alone queer that so long as she had thought he would be going without her she had been afraid she had felt certain he would be killed or die of wounds the one unbearable thing was that john should die but after it had been settled that she was to go with him as his chauffeur she hadn't been afraid any more it was as if she knew that she would keep him safe or perhaps all the time she had been afraid of something else of separation she had had visions of john without her in another country they were coloured vaguely with the horror of her dreams it had been just that anyhow she hadn't thought any more about john's dying it was the old man his father who had made her think of it now she could see him the grey kind silent man at the last minute standing on the quay and looking at john with a queer tight look as though he were sorry about something oh but unbearably sorry about something he'd thought or said or done he was keeping it all in it was a thing he couldn't speak about but you could see it made him think john wasn't coming back again he had gutted into his head that she was going out because of john she remembered before that his kind funny look at her when he said to john mind you take care of her and john's no fear and her own that's not what he's going out for she had a slight pang when she thought of john's father he had been good to gwinnie and to her at coventry but as for going out because of john whether he went or not she would have had to go so keen that she hated those seven weeks at coventry although john had been there with every thud of the engines her impatience was appeased and all the time she could hear gwinnie's light cool voice explaining to dr sutton that the british red cross wouldn't look at them and their field ambulance but the belgians poor things you know weren't in a position to refuse they would have taken almost anything her mind turned to them to gwinnie dressed in their uniform khaki tunic and breeches and puttees her fawn-coloured overcoat belted close round her to hide her knees gwinnie looked stolid and good with her face the face of an innocent intelligent routing animal stuck out between the close wings of her motor cap and the turned-up collar of her coat she would go through it all right gwinnie was a little plodder she would plod through the war as she had plodded through her training without any fear of tests and dr sutton from time to time she caught him looking at her across the deck when gwinnie's talk dropped he made no effort to revive it but stood brooding a square thick-set man his head leaned forward a little from his heavy shoulders in a perpetual short-sighted endeavour to look closer you could see his eyes large and clear under the watery wash of his glasses his features slightly flattened or laid quietly back on his composed candid face the dab of docked moustache rising up in it like a strange note of wonder of surprise there he was looking at her again but whether he looked or listened or stood brooding his face kept still all the time still and sad his mouth hardly moved as he spoke to gwinnie she turned from him to the contemplation of their fellow passengers the two belgian boy scouts in capes and tilted caps with tassels bobbing over their foreheads they tramped the decks seizing attention by their gay excited gestures you could see that they were happy the group close by her in the stern establishing itself there apart with an air of righteous possession five six seven men three young four middle-aged rather shy and awkward on its fringe in its centre two women in slender tailor-made suits and motor veils looking like bored uninterested travellers used to the adventure they were talking to a little man in shabby tweeds and an olive-green velvet hat too small for his head His smooth, innocent pink face carried its mustache like an accident, a mistake. Once, when he turned, she met the arched stare of small china-blue eyes. It passed over her without seeing, cold, dreamy, indifferent. She glanced again at his women. The tall one drew you every time by her raking eyes, her handsome, arrogant face, the gesture of her small head, alert, and at the same time set, the predatory poise of an enormous bird. But the other one was rather charming her features had a curious sweet bluntness her eyes were decorations deep-set blue in the flushed gold of her sunburn the little man straddled as he talked to them bobbing forward now and then with a queer jerking movement from his hips she wondered what they were and decided that they were part of the commission for relief in belgium bound for ostend all those people had the look that john had of having found what they had wanted, of being satisfied, appeased. Even Sutton had it, lying on the top of his sadness like a light. They felt precisely as she was feeling, all those people. And through her wonder she remained aware of John Conway as he walked the deck, passing and passing in front of her. She got up and walked with him. The two women stared at them as they passed. One, the tall one, whispered something to the other john do my knees show awfully as i walk no of course they don't Gwinnie's do she doesn't know what to do with them he looked down at her and smiled i like you i like you in that cap you look as if you were sailing fast against a headwind as if you could cut through anything their turn brought them again under the women's eyes he took her arm and drew her aside to the rail of the boat's stern they stood there watching the wake boiling and breaking and thinning a white lace of froth on the glassy green. Sutton passed them. What's the matter with him, she said. The war. He's got it on his mind. It's no use taking it like that, Jeanne, as one consummate tragedy. How are you feeling about it? I don't think I'm feeling anything except wanting to get there and wanting, wanting frightfully to help. Unless you can go into it as if it was some tremendous happy adventure, that's the only way to take it i shouldn't be any good if i didn't feel it was the most romantic thing that ever happened to me to have let everything go to know that nothing matters that it doesn't matter if you're killed or mutilated of course i want to help but that would be nothing without the gamble the danger he stopped suddenly in his turning and held her with his shining excited eyes war's the most romantic thing that ever happened false romance my father calls it jolly little romance about him He'll simply make pots of money out of the war selling motors to the government. It's rather romantic of him to give us those two ambulances and pay for us. Is it? Think of the kudos he gets out of it and the advertisement for Roden and Conway, the stinking paragraphs he'll put in the papers about himself. His second son, Mr. John Roden Conway, is taking out two Roden field ambulance cars which he will drive himself mr john Roden conway and his field ambulance car a rodin thirty horsepower he makes me sick she saw again with a renewal of her pang the old man the poor kind man perhaps he wouldn't put the paragraphs in the paper false romance he lied there's no such thing as false romance romance is a state of mind a state of mind can't be false or true it simply exists it hasn't any relation to reality It is reality, the most real part of us. When it's dead, we're dead. Yes. But it was funny to talk about it, about romance and danger. It made her hot and shy. She supposed that was because she couldn't take things in, her fat-headedness. It was easy not to say things if you didn't feel them. The more John felt them, the more he had to say them. Besides, he never said them to anybody but her. It was really saying them to himself, a quiet, secret thinking he stood close close in front of her tall and strong and handsome in his tunic knee breeches and puttees. she could feel the vibration of his intense ardent life of his excitement and suddenly before his young manhood she had it again the old feeling shooting up and running over her swamping her brain she wondered with a sort of terror whether he would see it in her face whether if she spoke he would hear it thickening her throat he would loathe her if he knew she would loathe herself if she thought she was going into the war because of that because of him women did she remembered gibson herbert glasgow but this was different the sea was in it magic was in it and romance and if she had to choose between john and her wounded it should not be john she had sworn that before they started standing there close beside him she swore again secretly to herself that it should not be john John glanced at Sutton as he passed them. I'd give my soul to be a surgeon, he said. That's what I wanted. You wanted to be a soldier. It would have been the next best thing. Did you notice in the list the number of army medical men killed and missing? Out of all proportion. That means that they're as much exposed as the combatants. More, really. Jeanne, do you realize that if we've any luck, any luck at all, we shall take the same risks? It's all very well for us if it was only being killed. But there's killing. Of course there's killing. If a man's willing to be killed, he's jolly well earned his right to kill. It's the same for the other Johnny. If your life doesn't matter a hang, his doesn't either. He's got his feeling, he's got his romance. If he hasn't... Yes, if he hasn't... He's better dead. Oh, no. He might simply go slogging on without feeling anything, from a sense of duty. That would be beautiful. It would be the most beautiful thing. There you are, then. His duty's his romance. You can't get away from it. No. But she thought, supposing he went, loathing it, shivering, sick, frightened. Well, of course it would be there, too, simply because he went. Only you would feel it, not he. Supposing he didn't go. Supposing he stuck and had to be pushed on by bayonets from behind. It didn't bear thinking of. John hadn't thought of it. He wouldn't. He couldn't see that some people were like that i don't envy he said the chaps who come out to soft jobs in this war they had found the little man in tweeds asleep behind the engine house his chin sunk on his chest his hands folded on his stomach he had taken off his green velvet hat and a crest of grayish hair rose up from his bald forehead light and fine the sun was setting now the foam of the wake had the pink tinge of red wine spilt on a white cloth a highway of gold and rose edged with purple went straight from it to the sun after the sunset, land the sunk lines of the flemish coast there was a stir among the passengers they plunged into the cabins and presently returned carrying things the group sorted themselves the commission people standing apart with their air of arrogance and distinction the little man in tweeds had waked up from his sleep behind the engine-house and strolled with a sort of dreamy swagger to his place at their head everybody moved over to the starboard side they stood there in silence watching the white walls and domes and towers of ostend charlotte and conway had moved close to each other she looked up into his face searching his thoughts there Suddenly from somewhere in the bows a song spurted and dropped and spurted again and shot up in the stillness slender and clear like a rod of white water. The Belgian boys were singing the Marseillaise on the deck their feet beat out the thud of the march. Charlotte looked away. End of chapter six recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.